I can bring us back to something that was mentioned earlier, John, as well, you mentioned that there are limits to the way in which we do risk assessments, if we can come back to that topic in particular. I just wondered if you'd like to expand, or, or Hilary maybe expand on, on what, what those limits to, if you like, the figures we get out. For example, you know that there's an acceptable level perhaps of, of radiation uh, or of uh, exposure to a hazardous chemical. Um, I wonder if you could expand a little bit on what, what the limits of science are in that. Well, they, well let me have a go, and I'm sure Hillary will want to add. I mean, there are, there, there are lots of them, aren't there? But m- a lot of risk assessment is, involves, for example, modelling, because you're trying to work out ahead of time what might be potential hazards in the path of doing something that nobody's yet done. And when you model, as I mean, anybody who's been involved with science and technology knows, you have to set up some sort of ideal situation, often on paper or in a computer, That ideal situation has to make a whole series of assumptions about the world, some of which you may be able to validate and some of which you may just have to make a best guess at. Now, the people doing this commonly know this, at least they should do, but that means that there are assumptions and constraints built in. If any of those assumptions should prove actually not to be correct, then the predictions the model makes may be wrong. And that may look like, oh, the science has gone wrong. What it's really saying is simply that modelling is a limited attempt to capture some features of the world. And you see this in really practical senses. For example, there have been cases where people have done risk assessments to workers in the use of new technologies, which make assumptions about the adoption of certain kinds of safety clothing or safety protocols. The assumptions are of what a doctor would call 100% compliance. (laughs) It then turns out, for example, in in one case I I happen to know about in the United States, that workers who were, as it were, captured by this model found themselves being asked to wear uncomfortable hot clothing out in hot fields. And, of course, they many of them did what anybody would do in that situation. They were to hell with this, you know, take, Mm -hmm. take some of this off. So immediately the model which said this is a safe form of work practice is invalidated and you know, the rest was a sad story. So these are the, some of the more obvious kinds of limitations, I think, that you have to face. Models and so on are, are interesting in getting us, get us so far, but once we let loose the thing into the world, the world starts getting much more complex. Um, is that a, 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 something that we've only just come to realise, that we're living in perhaps a world where there's a lot more complexity and uncertainty around than perhaps we were used to thinking about? I'm not sure whether anybody ever thought it was a simple world out there. I suppose there may have been some people who did. But uh, I think it's what is the case, rather, as Hillary was saying earlier on about risk itself, you now hear much more explicit talk about acknowledging uncertainty. And I think any notion that we're going to somehow improve our science and our modelling and predictions so that we can somehow tidy up the world and make it conform to simple expectations is clearly fantastic. We, we talked about nuclear power earlier on, that most of the really big problems that have happened with civil nuclear power have not been technical failures, actually. They've been the so-called cock-up theory of history. They've been people doing things that the modelers and the designers never conceived that anybody would do, you know, lighting candles in one memorable case to try to see more clearly while you're altering the wiring in in an American uh, reactor, or a, a group of board engineers deciding to do a few illicit experiments, for heaven's sakes, with a nuclear reactor in the former Soviet Union. You know, nobody, I suppose, ever planned for such eventualities. And I think we're getting more used to the idea that you have to assume the unexpected and try and take steps to make sure that if that happens, the outcomes aren't too bad. I just wonder what that does to our understanding of of the natural and social world, because often, I guess, what we've inherited from 
particular versions of science, and then, of course, we've instituted by calling ourselves social scientists, is that we can look at these two worlds separately and that we can do a risk model on what we can call the natural and perhaps the technical or whatever, of the engineering, and then, you know, see how it gets on in the social world. But perhaps we need to, from the start, if you like, see the natural and social worlds as, as bound up with each other. I don't know, what do you think of that idea, Hilary? Well, the very idea of the natural is itself something which um, we use as a resource to protect ourselves against something happening that we don't like. So it's both a huge cultural resource, but it's also something which is modified over time, what is natural. Um, I'm, very, I'm very clear about that, um, both in terms of what is natural for my body and for my mother's body and for my children and grandchildren's bodies, that these constructions of natural are constantly changing. And when you say we use it culturally, that's almost as a, a protection blanket that we say oh, nature, that's nature's... Like an act of God in the past, we call it nature or... Yeah, well, we say that genetically modified organisms, that is GMOs, are unnatural. Right. And so saying it's unnatural or it's going against nature, you're appealing to a huge cultural resource, that is, that I, the speaker, know what is natural mm. and I defend myself with this and appeal against the alien, the outside, by this recourse to nature. But then in another part of the conversation, which, of course, as social scientists we're all very familiar with, mm. you'll find that somebody's got a much more sophisticated concept of nature at the same moment, which they see as changing through history um, literally physically changing through history, mm. changing through the history of ideas about nature, both within and outside science. So it's this wonderfully fluid word being used in a hundred different ways. And, and perhaps many of these ways work best um, in particular settings by opposition. I mean, very often when someone argues that something is natural or is unnatural, they have in mind some contrast with something else. And, I mean, we, Hillary mentions GMOs. I think there's a classic case there where you see how the words both serve a purpose but also can be pushed to a point where they they break under use so people will often say that uh, gm technologies are somehow unnatural and by what they actually have in mind very often i think is some notion of what it what is natural and when you explore that you find that what they may be referring to is certain kinds of tra more traditional farming practice for example in this country at the moment organic farming which is being widely projected as in some sense natural and there's nothing wrong with that contrast in a way because what you're trying to argue, I suppose, here is, you know, the benefits or not of two contrasting methods of agriculture. But in another frame of discourse, the notion that organic farming is natural immediately breaks because, I mean, this is a form of culture. Mm. It's just a particular form of culture, a different exactly. one, from the one that we're contrasting here. Mm. And I think we should be comfortable with that so long mm. and not get too philosophically boring about it, mm. so long as we just accept that these words are working to make distinctions that matter to people in particular contexts. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.